0: Donald Reagan. Tear down this wall. Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone, and you are about to enter the Stone Zone. Today, January 9th, is the 111th birthday of President Richard M. Nixon. Born in 1913, he would have been 111 years old today. Uh, our show tonight is to celebrate both the man and his extraordinary achievements. And joining me to break this down is Monica Crowley, who is the host of the Monica Crowley podcast. She is an assistant, former assistant secretary of the Treasury, and worked as an assistant to President Richard Nixon in his post-presidential years. But before we bring Monica on, we're going to go to a brief musical interlude.
1: Mix it now Mix it now
0: here to celebrate the life and great achievements of President Richard Milhouse Nixon, the most durable political figure of the 20th century. And joining me to help talk about this and break it down is my good friend Monica Crowley of the Monica Crowley podcast. As I mentioned earlier, a former assistant secretary of the treasury in the Trump administration, uh, but who also worked as an assistant to President Richard Nixon in his post-presidential years. Monica Crowley, welcome.
2: Oh, it's so good to be back with you, Roger, in the Stone Zone and on Richard Nixon's 111th birthday. There's nobody I'd rather spend it with, with you. And I love that musical interlude and that montage of photos of Richard Nixon. It makes me miss him so much. I miss him every day. And that montage just brought back so many fantastic memories. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Roger. And as I've said to you, talking about Richard Nixon is one of my favorite things to do. He's my favorite topic. So thank you for giving me the chance on this very special day. Um, You know, I had always been a Republican. I think I came out of the womb, a conservative. And, you know, as I was coming of age in sort of junior high and high school, Ronald Reagan was president. And everything he was saying just sort of instinctively struck me as correct, Roger. Um, And I I didn't quite know why, because I didn't know the depth of policy at the time. Obviously I was such a little girl, but just instinctively everything Reagan was saying just struck me as correct. So I knew I was gonna be a lifelong Republican. And when I was in college, I took a course on national security. And I was the only kid in a class of about 80 other students to get an A plus in the, the class. And it turns out that the professor in the class was pretty much the only conservative professor. And I was pretty much the only conservative kid. So he became a mentor to me. And as I got ready to go home for the summer between my junior and senior years, he went to his bookcase and he chose four books for me to, to read that, to summer, read that, that summer. summer. And he said, and when you come back, fall, fall, and we'll talk about fall, 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 what you learned what from, we'll them learn from them from and how to build a mirror your passion, passion for national, national, national security and American, and American foreign policy. So the first book I chose to read happened to be a book by Richard Nixon called 1999 Victory Without War. Nixon used to write a new foreign policy. Policy book every two years to keep up with how the world and the country was changing and America's place in it. So at the time, Roger, it was his most recent foreign policy book and it had such a profound impact on the way I thought about the world that I sat down and I wrote him a letter. It was a two-page single space letter dealt with the issues he had raised in the book and at the end of the letter I sort of put a throwaway line in there saying, Gosh, Mr. President, I know you must be really busy, but I'd love the opportunity someday to pay my respects to you in person. And wouldn't you know, Roger Stone, that about a month later, as I was getting ready to go back to college for my senior year, I went to my mom's mailbox and there was a handwritten letter from Richard Nixon to me. (laughs) And he invited me to come to his office in New Jersey and and meet him, which I did when I started my senior year, and that ended up uh, being a four-year-long adventure of a lifetime, working as a foreign policy assistant to the greatest president. And this is before we've seen we've seen Donald Trump, but certainly the greatest American president of the 20th century, Donald Trump will of course be the greatest president of the 21st century. But I ended up spending four years with him, traveling around the world. We could talk about all of the heads of state with whom I met, working with him on all of his speeches and his op-eds and essentially serving as a sounding board for President Nixon. And it was the greatest honor and adventure of my life. rabid Goldwater right. Uh, The woman who lived next door
0: to my family was active in the Women's Republican Club, and she gave me a book entitled uh, Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater. And I read it, and I was immediately transfixed. I became an ardent anti-communist, a supporter of peace through strength, someone who was against government waste and high taxation for maximum uh, political freedom. And I went down to the local Goldwater headquarters, local Republican headquarters, and I volunteered for Barry Goldwater. And for a brief period, Barry Goldwater was my hero. I didn't know much about politics. I was only 12 years old, uh, but I was crushed when he was defeated. Uh, That launched me into uh, a fervor of reading more about American history And I began to read about the 1960 election. uh, And I came to the conclusion uh, that not only was Richard Nixon uh, in many ways a better candidate with a broader appeal than Barry Goldwater, uh, but that uh, he had been cheated out of the 1960 election uh, through election fraud in both Texas uh, and uh, Illinois. I also came to the conclusion that he made a number of egregious errors in that campaign. Uh, errors that would not have been expected of a more experienced politician uh, like Nixon. But despite those errors, uh, he fought his way back in the final weeks of that campaign to a photo finish in which I became convinced that he had been robbed. So like you, I sat down and wrote him a letter. Uh, He was practicing law in New York City. He was in exile. Uh, And um, I told him that I thought that he'd been cheated by the Kennedys in 1960. I thought that he was the one man who could solve the country's problems. This was at the beginning uh, of the uh, escalation of the war in Vietnam, uh, and that he should run again. I got back a very nice letter, which of course I still have, which he told me that he thought he was finished with electoral politics. Well, he was not telling the truth about that. He was just biding his time. But that if he decided to run again, he would certainly be in touch. It was two years later. These are the days when the telephone was on the wall in the kitchen of your home. Uh, when my mother called me and said, there's a man on the phone named John Whitaker, says he's an assistant to Vice President Nixon. Uh, would like to speak to him. And I was, of course, very excited. And I said, is this Roger Stone? Yes, it is. Well, we have your letter on file. Uh, We are beginning to organize a campaign uh, out of New York City. Um, Would you, are you still interested? I said, I'm very interested. He said, would you come in for an interview? I said, of course. So I took the train into New York City. Uh, When I showed up, it became very clear that they were expecting a much older man. They had no idea that I was a kid. By then, I guess I was 16. Uh, And uh, uh, I basically said, look, I can do anything and everything. So I got a job as a gopher, uh, essentially sitting outside the door of John Mitchell's law office uh, in the beginning at Mudge, Rose, Guthrie and Alexander, which was then Nixon, Mudge, Rose, Guthrie and Alexander, the white shoe Wall Street law firm where Nixon had parked his hat in the brief time that he was uh, in the wilderness. Uh, And it was an amazing experience because I saw the greats uh, of uh, American politics come and go. I saw Billy Graham come visit Richard Nixon. I saw Everett Dirksen, Barry Goldwater, Nelson Rockefeller, George Romney, uh, Bill Scranton, Tom Dewey. Uh, It was heady stuff for a kid. Uh, And then, of course, uh, I went on to college in Washington, D.C. with a great letter of recommendation. Later, would be the youngest person to work on President Nixon's uh, re-election campaign in 1972. Uh, I did not get to have a personal relationship with the man himself, really, until his post-presidential years, uh, when I was elected young Republican national chairman in 1977 to 1979. uh, And he graciously uh, invited me uh, to visit him then in San Clemente. Uh, And Ken Kochigian, who I got to know later much better, but was then his assistant, he cautioned me that you will only have a few minutes with the old man, as he called him. Uh, He's got a very busy schedule. Uh, Became very clear when I went into his office that he had nothing to do. His desk was barren. Uh, And and he congratulated me on my election. And he said, uh, so what kind of shape is the party in? This was in 1979. I said, or actually 78, early 78. I said, the party's in great shape. We're going to take back the White House uh, in 1980. And he said, well, surely you mean when we nominate uh, John Connolly for president? I said, no, sir, we won't be nominating John Connolly. We'll be nominating Ronald Reagan for president. He said, you really think so? And I said, yes, I really do. And he said, "Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you have plans for lunch? Of course, I didn't. Uh, so I had lunch with Richard Nixon. And then we talked politics literally for the next four hours. Uh, he was the ultimate political animal. He had an innate ability to see forward. Uh, he was a man, as you know, of extraordinary, extraordinary personal discipline. Uh, he did calisthenics every day before working out was popular. He was very careful about what he ate and drank, and drank. was always uh, concerned about his personal appearance because, well, he knew politics was at heart show business. So I had a a, a similar situation in terms of how I joined the band, uh, as it were. Um, What's amazing to me uh, is how unlike his public image he is. You got to see him up close. There's a great anecdote in one of your great books we're going to talk about later uh, about your coming in while he had his shoes off and then his feet up, was uh, watching television someplace he would never want to be seen. He was extraordinarily buttoned down. Uh, and you said something on my radio show last Sunday that I really identified with, which is I often thought if Paul, people saw the real side of him, saw the human side of him, uh, that were they would have taken the edges off, but he was such a formal man that he he didn't like that. He didn't want it.
2: Yeah, you know, he was of a different generation, right? World War II era. And he was a a very formal guy. That didn't mean that he couldn't let loose once in a while. He loved football. He loved going to Giants games. He loved going to Yankee Stadium and and sitting behind uh, the dugout or behind home plate and taking it all in. He loved a good movie, loved a great book. Um, And he loved his friends. As you know, Roger, he was very close with Bibi Rebozo and Bob Applinap. And I got to know them in uh, the time that I worked for President Nixon. And I have to say, when he was in their company or in the company of his own family, Mrs. Nixon, his two daughters, Julie and, and Trisha, his grandchildren, eventually, he could really let loose. And, and the peals of laughter that would come out of any of those groupings, you know, when he was with Bibi or it was, he was with Julie or Trisha, peals of laughter, um, which he never really showed. I mean, in that montage you had at the top of the show, there are a lot of pictures of Richard Nixon smiling, laughing, playing the piano. There were those moments. But at heart, he was a very serious man who believed in a seriousness of purpose, both for himself and for America. So, you know, he didn't show a lot of levity in public because he said, look, I'm I'm a sitting congressman or a senator or vice president or president of the United States or former president in his later years. And there's a seriousness that goes on with that role. And if I want to continue to be taken seriously, I have to present that serious image. But as I said to you on your radio show, you know, If he had shown more of the self-effacing humor that he he put on display to people like you and me and his family, people he trusted, not that it would have saved him in Watergate, but it would have given more of a reservoir of goodwill toward him, which didn't necessarily exist. When the crap hit the fan, as it does for every president, you wanna be able to have a reservoir of goodwill to draw upon. Um, where people will give you the benefit of the doubt for a longer period of time because they genuinely like you. I think the American people liked Richard Nixon, but I think more importantly, they respected and admired him because he was so brilliant, because he was a true intellectual, because he was a true visionary. But the lighter parts of Nixon that you and I saw, the general public didn't see all that much. Oh, Roger, look at that picture. How about that hair? Can we talk about that hair on me? <laughs> Look at that. That is something. And there you are. Look at your hair, Roger Stone. You're, lo- <laughs> you're looking really good. Those are some great photos right there of the great man with uh, you and me. And you know, as I've said, Roger, yeah, and I, I I've think, told uh, you. Re- yeah, go ahead.
0: Uh, Richard Nixon understood uh, the the importance of base. Uh, you pointed out that you, like me, are a, a product of the conservative movement. Richard Nixon realized that the party was moving right at exactly the right time. So in 1960, he was very narrowly defeated. Uh, but it's important to point out that in that election, he had the strong support of both Nelson Rockefeller on the left of the party and Barry Goldwater on the right of the party. Uh, uh, with the, uh, he began immediately planning uh, to try to run again in 1964 uh, with the unfortunate uh, and tragic murder of President John F. Kennedy. Uh, I think it was Bill Sapphire who wrote that it had the inadvertent effect of breathing life back into the political fortunes of Richard Nixon. Uh, but Nixon realized uh, that Senator Goldwater not only would win the nomination, although Nixon did try to maneuver for a deadlock between uh, Rockefeller, uh, Goldwater, uh, and uh, Romney, uh, when that he could not achieve that, uh, he realized that Nixon, or that Reagan, pardon me, that Goldwater would be nominated. And this is where I think his, his political brilliance is concerned. When Nelson Rockefeller bolted the party, would not endorse Goldwater. When George Romney, who was Mitt Romney's father, the governor of Michigan, bolted the party, would not endorse Goldwater. Uh, when Bill Scranton, uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, these were the pillars of the liberal Republican establishment, bolted the party, Richard Nixon made more campaign speeches on behalf of Barry Goldwater than Goldwater made on behalf of himself. Richard Nixon worked harder in what he knew was would be a losing cause for the party uh, and for the nominee than Goldwater voted uh, did for himself, which is why uh, when the combination of the murder of John Kennedy, the murder of Robert Kennedy, uh, the assassination of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, and uh, the tragic war in Vietnam parted the political seas for Richard Nixon, uh, and he sought to be renominated, the conservatives, Barry Goldwater, Strom Thurmond, Bill Buckley, uh, Everett Dirksen, Carl Curtis, uh, the giants, John Tower, uh, the giants of the conservative wing of the party, uh, were not for Uh, first term Ronald Reagan, who was quietly maneuvering for the 1968 nomination, but they were already committed uh, to Richard Nixon. The feeling among party regulars was, uh, you know, good old Nixon, when the chips are down, he didn't, as Pat Buchanan would say, uh, head to the high grass. Uh, I think that demonstrates uh, that a real understanding of how the center of gravity within the Republican Party had shifted to the right. Uh, Nixon considered himself a conservative, although in all honesty, I think he was really at heart a pragmatist. He liked the Tory label. He liked to call himself a conservative. But the truth is, He had very conservative views on some issues. He had very progressive views on other issues. He had a perfect civil rights record. The 1958 Civil Rights Act would never have gotten through the Senate without Vice President Richard Nixon rounding up the Republican votes to make it pass with Lyndon Johnson behind the scenes leading the charge to defeat the 1958 Civil Rights Act.
2: Yes, you are exactly right. And, you know, I think about those wilderness years for Richard Nixon from 1962. they really shouldn't. As you point out, those were critical years to Richard Nixon, uh, both politically and personally, because he spent that time, yes, practicing law, which generally made him miserable. I mean, it paid the rent, it allowed him to accrue some real uh, money for the first time in his adult life, but he wasn't happy. The law was not his passion, politics was his passion. And so he spent those six years plotting his comeback to eventually win the presidency in 68. And he spent that time, as you say, crisscrossing America, going into every district, going into every precinct, going into every state, uh, fundraising, giving speeches, providing endorsements to anybody running on the Republican side. And as you point out, he saw the, the ground shifting in the GOP as well but to anybody who asked and wanted him there, he went. And he was doing a brilliant thing over the course of those six years because he was guiding the party to where he needed it to be so he could secure the nomination in 1968, but he was also collecting chips so that when it came time for him to declare that he was running in 1968, he could call in all of those favors thousands of Republican candidates from governor to senator, to Congress, to dog catcher. He could call in all of those chips and all of those people immediately stepped up. So as soon as he declared in 1968, it was like throwing a switch. And he had a standing army of people all across the country, ready to step up and help Nixon for president in 1968. That support turned out to be indispensable.
0: Uh, That's an excellent analysis. 1966 was a record year, record number of gains in the House and the Senate. Nixon campaigned harder than anyone. Uh, He was viewed as the titular head of the party. Uh, And then a very fortunate thing happened when he gave a speech critical of President Lyndon Johnson's handling of the Vietnam War. Johnson gave him the golden gift of attacking him personally, called him a chronic campaigner. This, of course, uh, elevated Richard Nixon to the role of leader of the party. Uh, The networks gave Nixon time to respond. Uh, It was uh, really the culmination of of an extraordinary effort. One of the things that impressed me was that in that period, uh, Nixon gathered around him a number, not the people who had advised him when he was vice president, not the people who worked for him uh, in the Senate, but he put together a group of young, uh, brilliant uh, assistants, aides, speechwriters, researchers, and so on. Uh, people alike, uh, right, left, and center, like Pat Buchanan on the right, uh, like uh, William Sapphire in the middle, who was considered a moderate Republican, like Ray Price, who was considered a liberal Republican, uh, put John Sears, who was a brilliant uh, political operative. Uh, Martin Anderson, uh, who later uh, went to work for uh, governor and president Ronald Reagan. Uh, All of these men were in their late 20s at the time. Uh, Nixon thrived on young people with young ideas and new ideas. Uh, One of the things that uh, you and I talked about earlier today was his uh, very interesting relationship with Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Now, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. Uh, who had actually run for the New York City Council president's position and been defeated. He was uh, was a liberal Democrat intellectual, a member of the ADA, uh, but he would later be recruited by Richard Nixon specifically uh, because of his interest in the cities uh, and in urban policy. Talk to us about that relationship.
2: Yeah, you know, it it's, uh, harkens back, Roger, to a time when Republicans and Democrats could actually have a civilized relationship, um, both publicly and privately. They could actually have real friendships. That doesn't really exist anymore, right? That kind of comity, C-O-M-I-T-A, doesn't really exist. But Nixon and Daniel Patrick Moynihan had a really substantial friendship. And it was based on the fact that both of them were true intellectuals where, I mean, I mean, they really were intellectuals. And I used to joke with Nixon, I'm going to tell everybody you're an intellectual. And he said, no, don't do that. It's going to ruin my image. But he really was. And so he had this tremendous friendship with Moynihan out of New York and also the late Mario Cuomo, out of New York, who was another liberal Democrat, who was also an intellectual. So even though on policy, there wasn't a lot of common ground there, um, they, they sought each other out because they wanted to have this tremendous exchange of ideas in a really honest and open kind of way and debate things between themselves. And again, I'm not so sure that really exists anymore. But on the Moynihan friendship, um, they used to read books, and then they would send the books to the other one, all dog-eared and underlined, and they would send them with a note and say, hey, you know, um, uh, hey, Pat, I just read this book, found it fascinating, would love your thoughts. And then Moynihan would read the book Nixon sent, and then the two of them would sit on the phone or in person for hours on end talking about the ideas in the book. But there is one particular thing that Moynihan shared with Richard Nixon when he became president in uh, January of 69. And he said to, to him, Mr. President, I, you know, I've got to tell you, this is the single most important piece of advice that I can give you as a new president. And the advice is this, the entire executive branch needs to be uprooted, root and branch and reformed every generation. And by generation Moynihan meant every 20, 25 years. The entire executive branch needed to be uprooted, reformed, and then rebuilt. And the reason he told Nixon that is because he said, if you allow the executive branch to go on longer than that, human nature and power are such that you will get profound corruption. And it will become so deeply entrenched, it will then become impossible to uproot it and reform it. And he said, listen, Mr. President, we did it right after World War II. We uprooted the executive branch and reformed it and created a whole new structure, including the National Security Council, which came out of World War II, et cetera. He said, but you're coming in in 1969. It's already way past the hour to do this again. So you're going to need to do it again. Otherwise, we're going to be in a world of pain and hurt, deep, profound corruption. And guess what, Roger? The deep state came after Richard Nixon, the way they came after John F. Kennedy, the way they're coming after Donald Trump, because they knew Richard Nixon was going to do this in his second term, and they could not allow it. They could not allow it because, of course, it threatens their power and their influence and their corrupt gravy train, just as Donald Trump now is threatening that corrupt gravy train. So they put they they destroyed Richard Nixon because they knew that he was going to destroy them. And the problem here, Roger, is we've had all of these presidents since Richard Nixon and none of them have done it. So this is why we have a deep state. This is why we have a corrupt DOJ and FBI. This is why we have a corrupt security state because it hasn't been done. But Donald Trump has promised that he will do it.
0: Uh, That's an excellent analysis. Uh, Bob Haldeman records uh, in his diaries, uh, there was a working uh, group already set up. Richard Nixon was going to restructure uh, the government uh, in his second term. As Tucker Carlson pointed out not long ago, when reelected, he was the most popular president in American history. He swept 49 states in what still the largest landslide in American political history. Uh, He had deep distrust of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, As we said on your podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, he knew of their role uh, in the assassination of John Kennedy. Uh, he, uh, He knew that they had briefed John Kennedy before the famous 1960 debate, uh, in which Kennedy taunted Nixon, saying, you're not doing anything to remove Castro 90 miles from our shore, when Kennedy knew, as Nixon did, that the Bay of Pigs invasion was already on the drawing boards. In fact, Vice President Richard Nixon initially was the head of the task force to consider uh, ways to remove Castro. But uh, Nixon could not say so without breaching national security. Uh, and Kennedy scored cheap points against Nixon. That debate uh, goes down uh, in American political history uh, as probably the most significant. Uh, Nixon made the mistake of thinking that what you said, the substance of what you said, was more important than how you looked, whereas John Kennedy understood that how you looked was every bit as important, perhaps more important uh, than, uh, than uh, what you had to say. Uh, and Nixon, frankly, was surprised when Kennedy came at him, not from the left, but from the right. Kennedy uh, was for a defense buildup. Eisenhower opposed a defense buildup. As vice president, Nixon was not in a position to disagree with his boss. Uh, Kennedy favored a silver silverback dollar. Kennedy favored a tax cut. Uh, Kennedy wanted a harder line against Castro and a harder line uh, uh, in, in China. So, Dixon uh, was shocked to find JFK coming at him from his right rather than his left. Here's what they don't tell you. Uh, Nixon bumped his knee on the car of a door after Labor Day in 1960. It became infected. He spent two weeks post-Labor Day in the 1960 campaign in the hospital on antibiotics, running a fever, uh, lost a substantial amount of weight. Uh, In the 1960 uh, convention, he made, uh, I think, a very bad decision Uh, When he could not decide whether to go left or right for a running mate, uh, and he couldn't decide whether to try to make inroads into the heretofore solid Democratic South, uh, at least into the border South, uh, or try to go for the large industrial states as Eisenhower had done. So he split the difference by making a pledge to campaign in all 50 states, which was an egregious mistake. So John Kennedy spent his time in seven swing states, just doing a constant tour of those seven states, whereas Nixon refused stubbornly, this is what he was like, uh, to give up on his pledge even though he had lost two weeks' time. Uh, He did five campaign rallies on his way to Chicago for the debate. He arrived there uh, exhausted, uh, still running a fever, 15 pounds overweight, Uh, when they went to the... Uh, the lighting check, which is kind of like the weigh-in in a prize fight, uh, observers said Nixon's face looked almost as gray as his suit. Uh, and, of course, uh, when John Hewitt, uh, the legendary producer of that debate, uh, said to Senator Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, will you be requiring makeup for tonight's debate? Uh, Kennedy said, no, I won't be requiring makeup. Now, Kennedy has spent the afternoon with two hookers on the roof of the hotel sunbathing, Richard Nixon was in his room cramming over uh, briefing books uh, and uh, still running a fever. Uh, when Nixon heard this and he was offered makeup, he insisted that he, too, would use no makeup. When he got back into his uh, dressing room, Kennedy went to his dressing room where he was made up by his personal makeup man who'd been flown in from uh, California. Uh, and uh, Nixon grudgingly agreed to use a product called Beard Stick. Uh, which is a powder that one used to conceal five o'clock shadow. Well, when the debate started, uh, the Kennedy advancement had turned the air conditioning down. Uh, Nixon was surprised that Jack Kennedy came at him from the right rather than the left. He began to sweat uh, and his makeup began to run. He literally melted on national television. With all of that, Those who listened to the debate on the radio thought Nixon had triumphed. Those who thought who saw it on TV thought Kennedy, uh, as Teddy White said, looked like a bronzed God. Uh, Dixon understood from that moment that he would have to master television if he was going to make a political comeback. Key point that they will not tell you. There were three more debates. Uh, Nixon not only gained weight, but started using a sun lamp. It is considered uh, that he won the next two debates, but the fourth debate was the best debate of the four for Richard Nixon, and he came in with a photo finish, in which I'm convinced, and I make a very strong case in my book, uh, *The Rise and Fall and Rise of Richard M. Nixon*, that that election was stolen from him. Uh, Monica, talk about, yes, his work
2: ethic.
0: talk about his work ethic. Yes, indeed.
2: Talk about his work ethic. Yes, indeed. I I completely agree with you about the stolen election. And as you well know, he was presented with concrete evidence on election night in his hotel suite of the fact that uh, the Kennedy operation orchestrated by the old man Kennedy had orchestrated this voter fraud in Illinois, West Virginia, and of course, Texas. And Nixon to his great credit said, you know, I can't contest this. The country is in the middle of the Cold War and it needs a full-time commander in chief. So he gets no credit for that decision, but it was an absolutely critical one uh, for the country. And Nixon was as selfless as ever with that. Um, And in terms of of the debate prep, you're absolutely right. People who heard the debate on radio thought Richard Nixon had won. People who saw it on TV thought Jack Kennedy uh, had won. And just a little anecdote, Roger, on this, this point, Years later, of course, uh, Richard Nixon hired Roger Ailes to help him with uh, media training, television coaching, et cetera, going into the 68 election. And at one point, Nixon kind of groused to Roger Ailes like, oh brother, you know, it's a shame that a man needs a gimmick to get elected. To which Roger Ailes responded, Mr. Vice President, if you think television is a gimmick, you're gonna lose again. And it was that comment from Ailes to Nixon that sort of woken him up to the the importance of television. And the rest is sort of history because he took all of Ailes' advice, 1968 and 1972. Um, So I just wanted to get those two anecdotes in. And please remind me of your your last question.
0: Uh, Nixon's work ethic in his post-presidential years. I mean, here he's in his 80s, but he's visiting Russia. He's visiting China. He's prolifically writing. Uh, No, Not only was he not a crook, he left Washington not only broke, but with huge legal bills that he had to pay. Uh, He's our only former president who refused to sit on a corporate board, who refused to take an honorarium for giving a speech, who refused to give a paid speech. Uh, uh, Everything he made in his post-presidential years, he made by writing and selling numerous bestsellers on foreign policy uh his industriousness, his hard work, which is really a hallmark of his entire life, uh, did not end when his presidency ended. It was actually just beginning, which is why uh, every living former president was at his funeral. Uh, and Bill Clinton uh, gave a particularly eloquent uh, eulogy, as did Senator Bob Dole. Uh, The Reagans were there, the Fords were there, uh, the Carters were there, the Clintons were there. uh, And it was a Bill Clinton who said, let Richard Nixon's life be judged by the fullness of his record, which I think was a very generous uh, comment uh, by uh, Bill Clinton.
2: Yes, it, it was. It was a very profound statement. Um, and greatly appreciated by people like you and me who admired Richard Nixon very much and wanted history to have a balanced view of him and his accomplishments. To the work ethic question, I've never seen a more disciplined uh, leader, never mind a disciplined person, than Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon got up the same time every day, very early in the morning. As you pointed out, he did his calisthenics or his exercise. And, you know, he would he loved to walk. So he would get up very early in the morning when it was still dark outside and he'd take a flashlight and he would walk around his neighborhood um, and he'd carry the flashlight with the light pointing down and he'd swing it. So he swang his arms as he walked through the neighborhood. And then when he would come back, he would have some breakfast. Usually it was like a coffee and maybe an egg or two, maybe some oatmeal. Kept a very kind of Spartan diet because he wanted to stay in shape. And then he would get to work. And this man worked for countless hours every day. He wrote, he read extensively. He was on the phone soliciting opinions from people like Henry Kissinger, uh, the sitting uh, national security advisor like Brent Scowcroft, for for example, most of whom came up under Richard Nixon in some form. Right. So he was constantly out there talking to heads of state, writing columns, uh, developing books, um, thinking about what the world was going to look like. 20 or 30, 40 years down the road so that he could talk about American policy and guide policymakers in the moment to develop policy to anticipate that coming world. So whenever people ask me about Richard Nixon, the very first thing I say about him, Roger, is that he was a true visionary. And I don't use that word lightly. We've had visionaries as president, but they're rare. They're rare, but leaders who could actually see what the world was going to look like down the road and then make policy in the moment to anticipate that world. Richard Nixon was probably, well, certainly our greatest modern visionary. Founding fathers were a group of visionaries as well, but and and Abraham Lincoln, obviously. But Richard Nixon was right there. And so he worked morning, noon and night to develop the vision and then execute it.
0: Uh. Very recently, uh, Luke uh, Luke Nichter, who's a historian, uh, had a a brilliant piece which I read about how Richard Nixon foresaw exactly what's going on in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict today. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, it was a great piece. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal a couple of months ago, and I recommend it to everybody. Um, He's a professor of history and He wrote about a document that the Bill Clinton Library and Foundation declassified and released. And it was a letter that Richard Nixon wrote to then President uh, Bill Clinton in 1994, shortly before Nixon passed away. And it was based on Nixon's last trip to Russia, which took place in February of 1994. I was not with him on that trip. I was with him on his uh, previous trip to Russia in 1993. Eastern Europe, Russia, et cetera, I met Boris Yeltsin, a young Vladimir Putin was in one of our meetings in St. Petersburg, so it was a fascinating trip. Um, but when Nixon came back from Russia in 94, he put pen to paper and wrote Clinton a seven page letter where he laid out exactly what he had found in Russia. And the theme of the letter was very urgent and it was very, it was very much based in an emergency situation. Because since the fall of the Soviet Union, 1989, 1990, Nixon had been advocating to George H.W. Bush, Brent Scowcroft, the entire national security team under uh, Bush 41, that the most crucial foreign policy question in front of us was to ensure that the new emerging Russia was democratic with a free market economic system. And he was arguing for a new Marshall Plan with our European allies to make that happen, to ensure that Russia did not backslide into a totalitarian dictatorship, whether it was communist or not. He thought that that would be a major national security, um, a crisis for the United States and a huge historic missed opportunity. And he was exactly right. So he was trying to bring George H.W. Bush along, but you know the American people were exhausted after the Cold War. There was no real political will to step up and do that kind of thing to try to bring Russia along and, and make sure it liberalized, small L, liberalized. So when Clinton came in, he saw a fresh opportunity. He was trying to bring Clinton along. And in this letter, he talked about the necessity of this. Otherwise, we're going to face a new Cold War with a new authoritarian nationalist um, kind of dictator in Russia. So he really foresaw the emergence of Vladimir Putin. And one of the big points, he said, was that Russia and Ukraine could come to blows if the United States did not exert the kind of leadership that was required. And he said, if that were to happen, Russia versus Ukraine, it would make it, it look like a PTA, uh, like a, you know other conflicts look like a PTA garden party, that it was gonna be absolutely disastrous for them, for the region, for the United States and the world. So he really foresaw that if the United States took the hand off the tiller, did not exert the kind of leadership that was required in the moment that this exact situation was going to unfold. And man, was he right.
0: Uh, I also think that, uh, that uh, opening the door to China, bringing them back into the family of nations, taking them out of the Soviet orbit continues to be one of his greatest achievements. Those today who try to say, oh, well, Nixon is responsible for the rise of China and the danger that China poses to America today, do not understand the reality. When Richard Nixon made a decision to play the Chinese off against the Russians, understanding that they had a long mutual border and a deep distrust of each other, China was a backwards, dirt poor, agrarian society with no technology. There were more ox. Than there were cars in the country there was no way richard nixon could foresee uh, that presidents uh, george hw bush and bill clinton would give most favored nation trading status to the chinese or that the clintons let's just say it would sell our most coveted and secret military targeting technology to the chinese for illegal campaign contributions so uh, nixon Uh, recognized China at a time that it saved the American people hundreds of millions, if not billions, in defense spending, uh, and he pulled them out of the Soviet orbit. It was uh, a great achievement, uh, but to blame him for the China of today is unrealistic and unhistorically supported by the facts. We talked about this last week on my WABC radio show. Uh, Richard Nixon mixed a mean martini. Uh, Now, he had an extraordinary seller. Uh, He was a wine connoisseur, uh, which, given his hard scrabble beginnings and his background, you would not have expected. uh, But uh, he was a man who was not retrospective. It was very hard to get him to talk about the past. He was very interested and focused on the future, who were the young and -and up-and-come leaders in the party and so on. But getting him to talk about Eisenhower or John Kennedy uh, or, or the 1960 debate or being stoned by a communist mob in Venezuela, uh, or any of the great events of his life, was almost impossible until he had a few cocktails. So uh, he uh, enjoyed a good martini. He had his own recipe, and he was very proud of it, called it a silver bullet. Here's how it works. Take a jar of olives, you drain the water, Uh, you drain the, the juice. Uh, You put it, uh, fill it with water, you swish it around, you drain the water, you fill it with dry vermouth, you put it in the refrigerator. Now you've had the foresight, as Richard Nixon would have, to have two chilled glasses in the freezer. Uh, You would take your cocktail shaker. This was very important, he said. You had had to have a a mixture of of cube uh, and cracked ice. Uh, You covered that with uh, gin or vodka. Uh, He was a gin man. I was a vodka man. Uh, You would then shake it very, very, very vigorously. Uh, So much, he said, that the outside of the cocktail shaker should burn your hands with cold. Uh, Then and only then was it ready. He would then take uh, the glass from the freezer. He would take an olive from the jar. He would drop it into the glass, and he would pour his silver bullet. And he told me specifically, if there are not tiny shards of ice on the surface of the martini, well, he would say, that means you effed it up. And there you had the silver bullet. So the first time I had one, I said, well, Mr. President, this is amazing. He said, yeah, I got the recipe from Winston Churchill. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so brilliant, so brilliant. I wanted to ask him about Winston Churchill, and I did, and Charles de Gaulle, and I did, and Mao Zedong, and I, and I did. And he used to talk to me about all of those towering figures of the 20th century. But you were exactly right about the martini. And he did share with me that he got the recipe from Winston Churchill, which is incredible. Um, you know, I'm not a big drinker. I was never a big drinker. So when I would go over there for some of these journalist dinners that he would uh, hold, He prided himself on mixing those martinis and essentially pass them out to anybody, whether they wanted one or not, uh, because he took such great pride. But when it came to me, I guess he thought I needed more of a girly kind of drink, Roger, because he said, Monica, I'm going to make you a special drink. I'm going to make you a gimlet. And it was made with gin and lime And of course, it was delicious, and he did a great job mixing it, but he'd hand me the gimlet while everybody else was having a silver bullet.
0: Uh, You speak of those those reporter dinners. This is one of the things I did for him in his post-presidential year. He decided he wanted to meet... The young and up-and-coming reporters, reporters he believed not would not have been jaded by Watergate, which they were not old enough to cover. So I uh, assembled three such dinners. Howell Reigns of the New York Times was one who attended that dinner. And then he and Nixon uh, developed a very lively correspondence that went on until Nixon's death. Howell Reigns was very proud of those uh, letters. Howell Reigns uh, was not like the journalists of today. Uh, some of those journalists it did not turn out so good. A number of them uh, attacked me viciously in the Mueller witch hunt, but many of them remain friends to this day. Again, uh, it demonstrates Nixon's interest in the younger generation uh, and, uh, and his commitment to new ideas uh, and uh, new thinking. Uh, I, I don't want to get too far here without talking, Monica, about your books. Tell us about your two books.
2: Oh, thank you, Roger. Yeah, you know, it's funny because President Nixon to me, you know, I just graduated from college. I was 21 going on 22 years old when I first started working with him. So to me, Richard Nixon was a boss, of course, but he was also a mentor, a friend, And he was like a grandfather to me. You know, his office was in northern New Jersey and I was living in central New Jersey. So when it would start to snow, he would let us go early and uh, so that we wouldn't get into any kind of trouble driving home. And by the time I would get home, there was already a message on my answering machine from Richard Nixon saying, Monica, I hope you got home safely. Please call me and let me know you're okay. That was Richard Nixon. So don't listen to any of the historical caricatures by the leftists in, in uh, their history professors or, or Woodward and Bernstein and uh, the left wing uh, media types. Richard Nixon was a kind, brilliant, generous, funny, warm, giving man. He was a great man, of course, but he was also a good man. And um, you know, I just I came to adore him so much that you know, when he passed away, I was devastated. And uh, Bill Sapphire, who was writing a, a column for the New York Times at the time, invited me to come to Washington and talk to him. So I did, and uh, you know, I sort of off the cuff said, well, he said to me, kid, what are you gonna do next? And I said, I really don't know. And then I mentioned Roger to Bill Sapphire that I had been keeping a daily diary in which I was reconstructing every single conversation I ever had with Richard Nixon over four years. And I remember he put his spoon down and he looked at me and he said, what? (laughs) And I said, yeah. And he said, well, kid, I know what you're gonna do next. You're gonna write a book. You're gonna write a book about your experiences with President Nixon because he knew that you were sitting there, you were taking notes, and that was the reason you were there. He was long-sighted. He knew that he wanted someone from a very young generation to be sitting with him in his final years so that you, Monica Crowley, could report to future generations the Richard Nixon that you came to know. And so I took that advice. I wrote those two books that you see on the screen for Random House. They became bestsellers, I am proud to say. And really I'm extraordinarily proud of those works as works of history, but also as labors of love to the man that I cared so deeply about and respected and continue to respect tremendously.
0: So again, Monica Crowley's two books, Nixon Off the Record and Nixon in Winter, they're available at Amazon as well as Barnes and Noble. You can find them quite easily online. I have read both of them. I'm I'm honored to be mentioned in one. Uh, also, tell us, Monica, about your podcast. Uh, you and I did a great podcast a couple weeks ago. I got a lot of compliments on it. How can folks find your your weekly podcast?
2: Oh, thank you so much for asking. Yeah, and you and I had a fantastic time. We did it for my Thanksgiving show, and we talked about. The kennedy assassination for the anniversary but also the bigger issues of the deep state and how they went after jfk richard nixon ronald reagan of course now donald trump so i recommend that show to everybody along with all the shows uh there it is the monica crowley podcast you can find it wherever you get your podcasts so apple google spotify stitcher all of the Evil Empire podcast companies, it's available there everywhere. And I do it a couple of times a week. So please go check it out. Today's show, I have a long interview with Caitlin Jenner, who made a lot of news with me on today's show with regard to the left's hijacking of the gender, uh, of gender more generally, but also the trans movement, how it was weaponized, how we need to protect children, biological males in female sports. Of course, we all knew him as Bruce Jenner, Olympic gold medalist. He's, she's got some incredibly important things to say about that. She also talks about Kim Kardashian a little bit and we talked about Donald Trump because she remains a huge supporter of Donald Trump and the MAGA movement and is willing to help Trump however she can. So fascinating conversation today with uh, Caitlin Jenner. Please go check it out.
0: That is really amazing. Let me thank Monica Crowley, the host of the Monica Crowley podcast, uh, former aide to President Richard Nixon uh, and a great, great friend for joining us today. Uh, in the Stone Zone. Monica, thank you, and God bless you.
2: Always a pleasure, Roger. Thank you. God bless you, too. And Nixon is still the one.
0: (laughs) Uh, He is indeed. Folks, I think as most of you know, uh, it's true that I have a tattoo on my back about the size of a grapefruit. Uh, It is directly between my shoulder blades, Uh, and it's not a political statement at all. What it is, is a daily reminder that in life, uh, when, you are, uh, when you are knocked down, when you are defeated, uh, when, you, when you are unsuccessful, uh, that you have an obligation to get up off the mat and get back in the game. The story of Richard Nixon is a story of persistence. It's a story of resilience. It's, a, it's an American story. It was Richard Nixon who said, the greatness comes not when things go always good for you, but when you take some knocks, you suffer some defeats when sadness comes, because until one has been in the deepest valley, one cannot appreciate uh, the majesty of the highest mountaintop. It was also Richard Nixon who said that a man is not finished when he is defeated, he is only finished when he quits. And I assure you that in the fight for America, I, among others such as Donald Trump, will never quit. In the meantime, God bless you. Godspeed. I should uh, ask you to please go to MyPillow.com. If you enjoyed the show, go to MyPillow and use a promo code stone, promo code stone. Uh, That's how we keep the lights on here, folks, whether it is the dog beds or the pet blankets or the the towels or the bathroom sets or the sheet sets. Uh, We wouldn't be here without Mike Lindell. Uh, and the great folks at MyPillow.com. So stop by there now, uh, and uh, your shipments uh, will be free uh, at this time if you use promo code STONE. Until tomorrow, uh, when Greg Phillips uh, of True the Vote joins us here on The Stone Zone to talk about how we can have a free, fair, honest, transparent election. Well, I'm Roger Stone. This has been The Stone Zone.
1: God bless you, and Godspeed.